Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario announcing an end to the mask mandate, but are you and your kids ready? Some controversy surrounding the use of wastewater data to monitor the prevalence of COVID-19 here in Hamilton. A pathogen repellent wrap invented at McMaster is moving closer to the marketplace. The review of the federal government's unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act is set to begin. Can Ukraine win the war against Russia? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau believes so. An ex- Experts say food prices will continue to climb across Canada this year. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. With continued improvements in trends, Ontario will remove the mandatory masking requirement for most settings on March 21st, with the exception of select settings such as public transit, healthcare settings, long-term care homes, and high-risk congregate care settings. That is Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, announcing yesterday that March 21st is the day that Ontario's COVID-19 mask mandate will come to an end. But will you ditch your masks right away or keep them on a while longer? And what about your kids? Will you continue to send them to school with masks in hands. Dr. Anna Banerji is a pediatric infectious tropical disease specialist and global health specialist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Dr. Banerji. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for coming on the show. What's your reaction to the mask mandate coming to an end on March 21st? So Ontario has a vastly diverse population and a single measure really doesn't work for everyone. For example, uh, right now, in northern Ontario, we're, we're in the middle, middle of the outbreak. Uh, most communities have many people affected, and, you know, reducing mandates at this point in time does not help uh, keep COVID out of those communities as well. You know, they're another population that is not the same as, for example, adults that can say, uh, I can choose to get vaccinated, I can choose to go to a movie theater or a restaurant and, and choose to wear a mask are kids and, and kids in school, and the situation there is very different. And I think that having these mask mandates go down, especially for children in school, right after March break, uh, increases the risk of transmission. So many health experts we've heard over the last um, number of hours have said that we should wait at least a couple of weeks after March break ends to get a true sense of you know how this mask mandate may come to an end better than it, than it may have. Do you agree with that, and why is that important? Uh, I, I think that uh, during March break that kids will or families will be mingling more. A lot of them will be traveling. And so you don't want a whole bunch of children to be coming back into school without masks. And we know that, uh, you know, less than 70% of uh, children between the ages of 5 and 11 are, are fully vaccinated. And so you're bringing back kids potentially with COVID into classrooms, like 30 kids in a classroom, there's going to be transmission. And in, in general, kids don't get very sick, but kids can get very sick. And I've seen too many cases of long COVID in kids to feel very comfortable with it, but also kids have their families. And so a child, you know, between the ages of uh, uh, five and 11 or younger goes to school, comes home and there's the pregnant mother, who's not going to wear a mask with that child, or there's the, or, or another family member with cancer, or someone else, an elderly grandparent. And so I think that it's, it's better until we know what the numbers 
actually are, and that the numbers are really going down, because we've made a lot of changes in a short period of time, that that you keep the mask made on mandates on for, for a little bit longer. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Anna Banerjee, a pediatric infectious tropical disease specialist and global health specialist joining us here on the show. Do you get the sense that this might be more of a political decision as opposed to a health decision? You wonder. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is just lumping all of Ontario and, and assuming that everyone's an adult that can make those decisions when, you know, when you've got the kids, but you also have other populations that, that really this, this, these, uh, the dropping the mandates can be very harmful, like the northern communities. So I think that, that you know, the assumption that we're all the same and we're all in the same circumstance plays into the decision. And, it, and, and to me, uh, you know, not knowing how these decisions are being made, you wonder if it's more political. What is the likelihood that after March 21st, whether it's the fall or maybe next winter, that we have our masks back on? No one really knows. It depends on what's, what's happening. We hear that Hong Kong is now having another wave. So it depends on, you know, the, the, uh, the mutations that are occurring around the world, but also the, the natural immunity that people have, uh, as well as the vaccine immunity. I think for us, most of our population is vaccinated, and many people have been exposed to COVID now. So hopefully it'll never be as bad. But, you know, you see other places that, that make you wonder how long this is going to last for so and i think it will be much harder in the future to have uh mandates and uh, uh vaccine mandates lockdowns uh mass mandates um and so i don't really know what the future holds dr minergy thank you very much for a wonderful discussion enjoy the rest of your day you too. Thank you. That is Dr. Anna Banerjee, pediatric infectious tropical disease specialist and global health specialist, commenting on the mask mandate coming to an end on March 21st. We heard the uh, yesterday from, uh, even before Dr. Kieran Moore uh, made that announcement, we heard from Premier Doug Ford as well. We have to move move forward from this. Like people, people are exhausted, you know, and the poor kids in the, those classrooms too. Like we, we, we got to move on. Sounds more and more like this is a, you know, with a provincial election this summer, sounds more and more like a political, more of a political decision than a health care decision. I don't know, just my spidey sense tiggling. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. City of Hamilton says using wastewater data to monitor the prevalence of COVID-19 in our community is a quote unquote lagging indicator. What does that mean? Robert Delatova, Delatola, pardon me, is the civil engineering professor at the University of Ottawa who leads the research team into wastewater testing in Hamilton and other cities and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rob, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Uh, we know that public health officials in Hamilton have said that uh, it's not something that has worked as a predictive measure in Hamilton to date, and percent positivity and hospitalization data is more representative of COVID-19 in this community. What do you say to that? Yeah, I definitely, you know, uh, percent positivity, hospitalizations, of course, they're the public health unit, you know, like um, they've a lot of these units have done such a great job throughout the pandemic. I think, you know, the, I trust in what, they, what they're saying. Um, with respect to the wastewater data, 
Um, we've been in Hamilton testing the wastewater since uh, July 2020. So it's been quite a long time now. Um, and the, it's been a, a great, I think, success that that testing in, in Hamilton. And we have data for, for quite a bit of time. And now we can understand. And if you look at that data across time, we can actually see that the wastewater precedes is ahead of, of hospitalizations throughout the pandemic. So throughout the multiple waves, we, we've seen upticks in the wastewater ahead of hospitalizations. In fact, if you do a mathematical correlation, uns, no, uh, you know, so do this subjectively, um, you will see that it, you're, you're, you're about 14 days, 10 to 14 days ahead of most waves. That's not the case right now, Rick, in terms of Omicron, things are different. It's a different sort of generation time, it's a different sort of infection uh, period. So that, 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 uh, that lead time has changed. But definitely throughout the pandemic, yeah, it's, it's been a leading indicator. Other medical officers continue to address this wastewater data in their uh, uh, issuing of information in their case studies. How how has it not been effective, at least from the, the standpoint of Hamilton Public Health? Why are, why are they not finding the wastewater data useful at this point? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, you know, I'll tell you from doing this also in Ottawa, um, the public health unit here has been um, really, really receptive to the wastewater data. Um, and they've been using it um, for a long time. In fact, they put it public uh, in November 2020. Um, and they, they started to use it and asked us to do it every single day for them in September of 2020 and have been using it since. Um, so I, I think it's just it's a new metric. I think different public health units are going to take different amounts of time to be able to come around to it and kind of look at it. it it's it's never going to be perfect. You know, it's, it doesn't it's, it's not it's wastewater. People fecally shed this into uh, our drains into into pipes that go underground and then we measure it. But if if you look at the mathematical correlation and you think about all that complexity and you try to correlate that to hospitalizations, I, I'm amazed at how well it works. Um, so I think right now, hopefully the narrative in Hamilton is changing a little bit. I'm very excited to hear if they're going to to uh, look to look at it now or at least make it public facing so other people could use it. Um, yeah, because it's been since the reporting and since this kind of new interest in, in Hamilton wastewater data has come has has been happening. There's more people. Uh, we're, we're getting more kind of interest in talking back with public health, which is great. We only have about a minute uh, for this uh, answer, Robert. But when you're looking at the wastewater data itself, does it mirror what we are seeing that is being projected by Hamilton Public Health? Is is the data somewhat the same? Oh yeah, very much, Rick. So um, I hope it's going to be uh, you're going to be able to see that data. Um, and right now, during the Omicron wave, it's 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 extremely similar. It shows that Omicron wave. It shows it going up. It shows it going down. Hopefully people could use that to understand what's going on uh, within Hamilton. Rob, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Be well. That is Robert Delatola, civil engineering professor at the University of Ottawa, who is leading the research team into wastewater testing in Hamilton and other cities. And uh, we'll wait and see what the, the data tells us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a very cool story. Maybe my favorite story of the day, apart from the hidden lizards and snakes story. Uh, this one here, two researchers at McMaster University uh, who invented a pathogen repellent wrap are seeing this project move one step closer to the marketplace. 
Dr. Leila Soleimani is an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices in the Department of Engineering Physics at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Dr. Soleimani. How are you? Good morning. Uh, I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Tell us about this new wrap. Yeah, so uh, this wrap we call the repel wrap is a plastic wrap, but it has this built-in microscopic structure that helps to repel pathogens. So things like bacteria and viruses. So what that means is that if you touch uh, with a contaminated hand, um, irregular wrap, contamination will get transferred to it. But if you touch the repel wrap, it doesn't get contaminated. The contamination stays on your hand. So does the wrap not absorb the pathogen? Is that correct? Yeah, think about it as extremely non-sticky, something that has low surface energy, just does not like things to stick to it because of its structure, both physical and chemical structure. So it's kind of like we say, it's like Teflon in plastic. It just, it just doesn't like things to stick to it. How did you develop this and how long did this take? Yeah, so we've developed this over the the last, uh, you know, more than five years, five to six years. Um, and we we came across this uh, property somewhat accidentally. So we were trying to develop the structure for another application for sensing. Instead, we realized that nothing sticks to this when, when we were running experiments with blood and other uh, physiological samples, we were realizing that things were not, were not getting absorbed to it. And, and then we thought, okay, well, how about we explore a new application? And through a number of collaborations at McMaster, we, we tested what we call the pathogen repellency of the rat. It, it seems like most of the greatest inventions in our world kind of happen by accident, and this would be one of them, I, I would suspect. How far down the road, uh, the road in your research did you make this shift to say, hey, this, this does this, we'll, we'll go down this uh, road now? I would say two years. For two years, we were, we were really working hard for, for another application. And after, after about two years, we thought, well, what if we explored, you know, team up with a, with a new group of researchers that work, uh, you know, with pathogens and test it. And, and that's, that's when we made the, the pivot, basically. Dr. Leila Suleimani is our guest, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices in the Department of Engineering Physics at McMaster University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. So regarding this pathogen repellent wrap, how and where can it be used in the marketplace? Yeah, so what we think uh, is that the first area of application would be on high-touch surfaces. So these would be on... You know, elevator buttons would be on door handles. Um, it would be, you know, in in high traffic areas like transit. Uh, but later, we think we can extend this to food packaging, medical devices that that get inserted into the body, and then there is a chance of bacterial contamination on them. Um, so there is a diverse set of applications that we're going to approach in phases. So what does this look like now? Is it a is it a big roll? Is it a sheet? Kind of describe it for us. Yeah. So right now, um, it's still a lab prototype. What we we have started a company that is working on with manufacturer that do what we call roll-to-roll processing. And you're exactly right. It's going to be processed to be uh, these big rolls that uh, that are either. Uh, 
send to customers as big rolls to, to big customers or cut up into sheet for you know smaller more end user customers and and send in the form of you know smaller sheets dr solomini how soon can we see this in the marketplace being used in places like i don't know shopping malls or hospitals um so the timeline we're looking at is is one to two years for for market translation all right and with those two areas that i just mentioned the the shopping scene and the medical arena would they be uh, maybe the first step into uh you know dispersing this into the market yeah th- those are definitely on our list uh we're, we're also looking at um you know long-term care homes planes you know other other area other transport means of transportation Fascinating stuff. Dr. Solomani, congrats on this discovery and going forward. And we'll certainly uh, touch base down the road when this does uh, hit the market and see how it's doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Leila Solomani, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices in the Department of Engineering Physics at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It will look at how we got there and why it was required. It could look at policing. The inquiry could also examine the funding, influence, and disinformation that supported the illegal blockades and occupations, both foreign and domestic. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That, of course, is the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as the review of the federal government's unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act is going to begin. And Trudeau says that his government is confident that existing laws and bylaws are now sufficient to keep people safe, which is why they decided to revoke the Emergencies Act a few days later. I think it was 10 days after it was initially brought in. So what happens at this committee and what will be the fallout once the final report is issued, whenever that happens? Laura Matakoro is an associate professor in the Department of History at Carleton University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Good. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. How is this committee going to analyze the use of the Emergencies Act? It's a great question, and I think people are um, really curious to see how the committee deliberations unfold, because as you mentioned in your introduction, this was the first time that the Emergencies Act was used in Canada, um, because it's new legislation from 1988. And so there's been a lot of questions about the composition of the committee, the amount of information that they'll have access to. Um, This actually is probably the key thing that people are wondering about is the extent to which they will be able to gain information in a very short time about the government's uh, decision making, the information that the government had available uh, when deliberating the, uh, the Emergencies Act. And so they are tasked, they have quite a large um, mandate because they're meant to figure out, you know, whether it was an appropriate use of the legislation. But that requires a fair bit of information, and uh, I think there's some questions around whether or not they're going to be able to access all that necessary information. And then there are questions about how much will be revealed to the Canadian public when they uh, do complete their work, which is mandated to to be, um, you know, they're supposed to submit a report very very shortly, and and the committee members are already saying that they we likely will see more than one report given the time frame that's been imposed on them. The ultimate question is, you know, did the convoy protest meet the emergency standard? Will, do you think, they be able to answer that question? 
It's, uh, it's uh, yeah, we all have so many questions, right? I th- I'm not sure they will be able to answer that. As I, as I was sort of alluding to, it depends how much information they're able to access. And one of the, um, one of the things that was suggested was that, you know, there were, there were national security concerns, there were concerns about funding and financial information. Um, and that, a lot of that intelligence is, is quite restricted. And so really, in my mind, the, the question of whether or not it met the, the standard required for the Emergencies Act is going to depend on the intelligence that the government was working with. And I hope that the committee is able to access the exact same intelligence that fed the decision making. Um, on the part of the Trudeau government. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Laura Martacoro, Associate Professor, Department of History at Carleton University. We're chatting about the uh, unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act and now the committee that is going to be analyzing why this act was brought into place for the first time. Could this committee go beyond just that question, i.e., you know, why were protesters allowed to camp out on Parliament Hill for almost a month? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that there will be more than one um, inquiry uh, into the events of uh, the past few months in Ottawa. I think there's obviously this this committee, which is tasked very specifically with ex- examining how the Emergencies Act was used, um, how it was invoked, whether it was appropriate. But we know that there are going to be inquiries um, at the municipal level in terms of what happened, how protesters were permitted to access the downtown with very large vehicles and then stay there for weeks on end. And so this, you know, this is, um, this is quite typical, I think, when we have major, uh, major events. If I think back, I'm sorry, I'm going to do the history piece for your, <laughs> for your listeners this morning. But, you know, if we look back to the invocation of the War Measures Act in 1970, which is the, the, um, the piece of legislation that the Emergencies Act replaced, there were a number of inquiries after uh, the FLQ crisis to figure out whether or not, you know, how that piece of legislation had been used, whether there was overreach on the part of police uh, and intelligence. And so I suspect that um, for the the events of the past few weeks, we're going to see the very same thing. We're going to see a number of inquiries, each of which will have a slightly different mandate. And we know that the City of Ottawa has already indicated that they, they want to review what happened, particularly um, as far as the Ottawa Police Service is concerned. Will there be uh, witnesses, for lack of a better term, testifying at the committee, i.e., will the Prime Minister be invited? Will former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly be invited? Will, will others speak to the committee? Yeah, I mean, the committee has to make some important decisions about how they're going to organize their work, and, and I'm really struck by how little time they have to do this. Um, so it will be interesting to see if they call witnesses, if they call experts. Um, a number of people on the committee are uh, very, they they're, have legal backgrounds, they are familiar with police work, and so the, the people that they've chosen for the committee in and of themselves have quite a bit of expertise, and it will be interesting to see uh, the extent to which they are able to call on, on witnesses and the kinds of questions that they'll be able to ask. We have one more minute with Laura Matacoro, Associate Professor, Department of History at Carleton University. We know that there are, uh, I believe it's seven MPs, four senators on the committee representing each and every party. The question is, will partisanship play a part in the final report or at least the deliverance of the information? 
Yeah, and I think people are worried about the extent to extent to which we will see partisan um, influences uh, shaping the discussions of the committee. We know that even from uh, how the committee was composed and the questions of co-chairs, uh, which are not going to be the Liberal or Conservative uh, and, uh, representatives. And so there is a concern about partisanship. And I also think... Um, you know, we need to think about the context in which this committee is being invoked. Since the occupation in Ottawa, we now have the situation in the Ukraine with the Russian invasion. And I think all of that changes the kinds of questions and framing that the committee will be pursuing. And so I do worry about partisan mm-hmm. politics. Uh, and so hopefully they are able to keep that at a minimum because there's some really important questions that we, I think all Canadians want to have answered with this committee. Yeah, it's going to be must-see TV. Laura, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Laura Matacoro, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Carleton University, should mention as well that this committee is going to be co-chaired by Hamilton NDP MP Matthew Green. So it'll be interesting to see how this committee uh, consumes the information and ultimately delivers its report or reports. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today, I can announce an additional $50 million Uh, worth of uh, equipment that we will be sending towards uh, Ukraine to help out. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying that uh, he's not only delivering more equipment, military equipment, heard that a bunch of drones are going to Ukraine, but he also believes that Ukraine can win the war against Russia. Stephen Sadman is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Professor Sadman, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Can Ukraine win this war? Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. It it really depends on what happens within Russia and within the Russian military. It's possible. I was very skeptical uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, I think still the odds favor the Russians, but I do think there are some glimmers of hope for the Ukrainians. The longer this conflict goes, does it benefit the Russian side or the Ukrainian side? It benefits the Ukrainian side uh, because there are pressures on Russia that this is much harder than they planned it to be, That was what they expected it to be. Uh, there was not a whole lot of um, enthusiasm for the war within Russia uh, beforehand. Uh, and now that the costs are rising for everybody, the sanctions, not just by the public actors like the United States, Canada, and all the rest, but by Nike, Adidas, McDonald's, Starbucks. Uh, you know, people in Russia have been wondering why they can't you know, buy their stuff for their Apple Pay and can't download uh, Google apps on Android, their Android phones. They've got to be wondering to themselves what's going on now. They, they have limited ways to exert pressure because Putin is very good at repressing. But you've got to have somebody support to rule. And if the people immediately under Putin are, are facing a high price for this, then, then maybe he'll agitate, maybe he'll change his mind, or maybe he'll look for a way out. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has repeated his call for a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Would that hurt more than help at this stage? Well, since it might lead to nuclear war, yeah, I think it would, it would hurt. I mean, the, the reality is that that Ukraine faces this tough war with our assistance, but we cannot become a combatant because there's been one rule that has allowed us to avoid nuclear war over the past, you know, uh, 70 years, which is we don't fight the Soviets and the Russians directly. And that, I think, is still operative right now, uh, that we cannot enter this war. And I mean, no fly zone will require us to shoot down Russian planes and attack uh, Russian anti-aircraft positions, 
uh, within not just Ukraine, but also Belarus and Russia. So it has a high risk of being catastrophic. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Stephen Sabin. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network, and the author of several books, including For Kin or Country, Xenophobia, Nationalism and War. There is a disinformation war as well. We saw a hospital bombed yesterday by Russian forces, Russia calling it fake news. How is the disinformation war uh, played a part in this whole conflict? Well, the thing is, the Russians have a really lousy story to tell. The Ukrainians have a very good story to tell. And the Ukrainians have been quite gifted in telling their side of the story. And so the Russians have to try to explain why they attacked this country. And they're grasping at anything that they can to justify their war. So they've been you know, saying they're denazifying Ukraine. Well, the president of, of uh, Ukraine is uh, Zelensky is a Jewish person, and Nazis and Jews usually don't get along. So it's kind of a strange kind of claim. Now they're talking about well, there's bioweapons labs that that, that were used against uh, Russia, and, and one thing to keep in mind is that the U.S. intelligence at the outset of this is really good. That everyone, the U.S. is saying they're going to attack, they're going to attack, and we're like, oh, I'm not so sure. And the Americans are determined to say yes, they're going to attack. Well, the last day or two, the Americans say. They're going to create an incident that will justify this war through, you know, leakage of chemical weapons. They're going to make it look as if the Ukrainians are doing it. So I think that the odds are really high that the Russians are going to try to do something to make it look as if the Ukrainians are doing something horrible. And we have to be careful not to fall prey to this. There are forces with our country, the forces with the United States, they're, they're swallowing up uh, Russian propaganda. Uh, and so we've got to be careful not to not to listen to it. What what is a victory in Putin's mind when he finally pulls out? Whenever that is, what what he consider a victory? Domination over Ukraine. That that was the goal in 2014 when he seized the hunk of Crimea from the Ukrainians, and that's the goal of this thing: is to be able to determine who governs in Ukraine and have it be a pro-Russia government. Uh, the irony is that his move in 2014 made that less likely by both alienating the country and by changing who our voters in Ukraine. He took about a lot of the pro-Russia voters out by seizing uh, Crimea, and what was left were voters were not so pro-Russian. So that was a mistake then. So I I, I think this war is also not going to lead to the Ukrainians being all that uh, sympathetic to the Russian cause. Stephen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for breaking it down for us. My pleasure, Rick. Stephen Sademan, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, the director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network, and the author of the book For Kin or Country, Xenophobia, Nationalism and War. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continues to make his European tour. He'll have a stop in Poland today, which has received uh, an enormous amount of refugees from Ukraine. And uh, I don't think we can say enough about not only Ukraine, but some of the other bordering nations around that war-torn country in accepting uh, just hordes of refugees who are trying to flee the conflict zone. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've noticed prices pretty much across the landscape of your favorite grocery store have gone up, whether it's the meat aisle, the dairy section, even those shelves in between. You know, the, you know the, the, the aisles you're not supposed to be going down? But we go down them anyways because we like the bad stuff, too. <laughs> Prices across the board have gone up. And there's also a thing called shelflation. Well, what is that? 
We're going to find out as food prices continue to climb across Canada. The Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University has released its latest food report. Janet Music is the research program coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Janet. Good morning. What are some of the things that you have found regarding uh, the, the latest food report and shelflation? Well, you know, alarmingly, food prices have kind of skyrocketed since this time last year. And, you know, to kind of compound those prices, we're noticing that food is actually going bad or expiring uh, before we've had a chance to use it when we get it home. So we're throwing away a lot of that food that we're buying at inflated prices. Is this more or less the produce area? Because I've noticed, especially in produce, that it's not as crisp as it once was. That's right. And so the the produce aisle or aisles, I guess, is where we're seeing it the most. And so 45% of the people that we talk to were throwing out produce. And that's that's not surprising. We often throw out produce. We either buy it, you know, aspirationally, you know, so we think we're going to eat salad all week. But really, you know, as you said at the beginning, you know, we want that bad stuff. Um, but it's not just limited to the produce aisle. We're throwing away dairy. We're throwing away bakery products and sometimes meat. Are we buying too much of this stuff or are we just, as you said, you know, buying it, thinking that we're going to eat it anyways and eventually we don't? Should we be changing our buying habits? Well, I think, you know, we're going to be forced to change our buying habits just because it's too expensive to waste food at this time. Uh, We shouldn't be doing that anyway, but it's just gotten to the point now where we're going to have to do a lot more meal planning and maybe, you know, maybe educate ourselves on, on what produce is supposed to look like when it's when it's ripe, when it's not ripe yet, and when it's just about to go bad. And I think we're seeing kind of a culmination of maybe a lack of education about what we're buying and, you know, just no time to meal plan and, and all of these kind of modern day life things that get in the way of our food, you know, chores, mm-hmm. I guess. If we were to change our buying habits, perhaps buy less produce, for example, would that lower the price eventually? It's difficult to say because it's a complicated kind of uh, situation that we find ourselves in. You know, we're seeing inflated prices right now because of what was happening last summer. So, you know, climate change was really uh, a significant factor in the growing season last summer. And so, you know, there was less produce to go around anyway. And so the prices we're seeing are kind of those you know, shipping, uh, you know, situations we saw with labor shortages before the holidays. And now we're seeing this kind of conflict in the Ukraine, which is going to, you know, exacerbate uh, prices for food going well into the summer. So we we should buy less food because it's expensive and we don't want to waste it, but it's probably not going to impact prices in the short term. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We're talking about food prices and shelflation. How is shelflation calculated and what exactly is it? Well, you know, we know that there's been supply chain disruption since COVID, you know, way back in March 2020, you know, so vaccination mandates and and people getting sick. So there were labor shortages. And then, of course, there's the so-called great resignation. And so 
what was happening is, you know, the supply chain was being disrupted at different points of time, but it was being reported on. So we, we kind of knew, right. And when you go into the supermarket, you see the empty shelves and you say, okay, well, you know, something is happening here. But when we, we go in and we buy food that goes bad more quickly, that's a symptom of these hidden supply chain issues. So we don't actually know what happened to our carrots between the ground and our fridge. And so these are hidden supply chain disruptions that we don't know the life of our food. And so then our food is not lasting as long as we expect it to. So when you buy produce, you're basically buying a bit of time. So you have an expectation, but with shelflation, that time is significantly shorter than what you anticipated. The overall food price increase uh, predicted for 2022 was about 5 to 7 percent. Now that we have this war in Ukraine, gas prices are that much higher. Should we expect food prices to continue to climb? You know, we're, we did predict that, you know, we do that every year in December, we release the food price report where we look at different categories. And we did predict five to 7%. And we're, we're experiencing the 7% now. Of course, we didn't predict a war uh, in Europe for 2022. You know, not many people did. So, no. you know, we don't want to cause people to be alarmed. And I think the 7% it may go to 8%, maybe even 9%. We're not going to see hyperinflation in the food industry, but we're going to see prolonged inflation. So food prices are going to go up and they're probably going to stay there. Last question for Janet Music from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We have about a minute here. We talked about the COVID impact on the supply chain. Is there a real impact um, with this war and the rising gas prices on the supply chain? There is, absolutely. And so, you know, we've been talking about wheat for the last week or so. And, and, and Russia and the Ukraine, they, you know, they produce about a quarter or even a third, depending on your source, of the world's wheat kind of uh, sources. So that's a huge amount. That's just slightly more than Canada, uh, slightly less than what Canada produces. And, and there's no way that we could in the short term pick up that that shortfall. And, and if you think about wheat, it, you know, of course, we know it goes into bread and cereals. But it also, you know, those grains kind of feed our meat, you know, feed that cattle or chicken or whatever. So, you know, when you cut supply, of course, you're going to have rising prices, and it's going to have an impact. And then, of course, you know, fertilizers are also being impacted because of a lot of potash or nitrates or nickels that comes out of Russia as well. Those prices have already been inflated. So that's just going to be one more cost that farmers are going to have to kind of weather as we go into the growing season in Canada. Great insight, as always, from Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Janet, thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.